Colossians 3, verses 1 to 11. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You you used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts and the meditations of our hearts and minds be ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. O Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all drive Porsches, I must make amends. Don't worry, I'm not going to carry on. Um, um, I think for lots of people that might be the ultimate expression of the Christian faith, the prosperity gospel in America, whereby if you are rich, then you are blessed by God, and if you are poor, well, woe betide you. There is um, the story in our family of um, 
great auntie Beatty, when she passed away, um, there was an armchair that she'd always sat in. And um, uh, when she died, the dispute in the family as to who was going to get the armchair. And it was quite a rubbish armchair, if I'm really honest. But this caused all kinds of tension because it was all about the who does what, who's in charge, who loved her the most, and all of these kinds of things came, came bubbling out at that precise moment. The armchair's now on some landfill site somewhere or other, um, but it caused all kinds of problems because the possessions got in the way of actual effective conversation between people. Jesus, at the start of our, um, of our gospel reading today, he um, is confronted by these, uh, this man who, who wants him to, to basically help out with a dispute about inheritance. And I'm sure we've all been there in some way, shape or form where you, you have to deal with the possessions of somebody once they have gone. How do you deal with that? How do you ensure that there is equity amongst the family, that there is harmony going forward? It was the role of a rabbi... Um, to be the judge or the arbiter between people uh, when it came to inheritance issues. But by and large, the, the rules were simple at the time. Women, <laughs> you didn't have any rights at all, so you didn't count uh, in any property disputes. That was nice and simple as a result. That's at least 50% of the population that you can remove from all of the, the quandaries as a result. And the older brother always took double what anyone else in the family would get. So this man going to Jesus and saying about how he, he wants some help with the whole process, it was blindingly obvious whole, what should actually have happened anyway. So Jesus, I think, is sort of concerned that there might be some, some bubbling away, some greed amongst the whole of this, which is why he refuses to be part of that conversation and instead shifts the conversation onto something else entirely. There are those who will look at these parable of the rich fool and think, well, actually, is he a fool? Because in some respects, we, we could argue that he's, he's being very, very sensible. Um, he has clearly watched that uh, advert with Parkey about ensuring that his, his funeral plans are all sorted. Um, and uh, he sorted out his pension pot going forward. Um, and how many of us can actually say for certain that we've really got that absolutely nailed and so on? Um, my generation, I think I'm allowed to retire when I'm 134, I think is, is how it's going. So on the one hand, he's being very sensible, he's being very prudent. He wants to feel secure for his old age. Nothing wrong with that, surely. So why is he a rich fool? And then alongside that, well, he wants to spend his time putting his feet up, relaxing, eat, drink and be merry. Nothing wrong with that either, I'm sure we'd all say. How many of us have had secret yearnings for just doing absolutely nothing apart from a gin and tonic, and that's about the sum total of a day? We've probably all been there, nice sunshine, maybe that's your plan for this afternoon. So why is he a rich fool? 
Or maybe the question is about how on earth he ended up being rich in the first place. There were all kinds of protocols that were there at the time around harvest and what you were supposed to do. That you were supposed to ensure that uh, other people would benefit from the abundance of your own crop. There were all kinds of legislation in Leviticus and Deuteronomy to ensure that the poor themselves benefited to an extent from an abundant crop. And maybe people might have been reminded of the story of Joseph in Egypt and the seven bumper crop, seven years of bumper crops and uh, getting ready for the seven years of famine. That for a man to spend all of his time thinking, well, I've had a good harvest, I'm now going to bash down all of my buildings and build bigger ones just so I myself can benefit and nobody else. He's breaking all of the rules, he's breaking all of the conventions of what was expected of him. He is secure for the future, but what about his fellow neighbour? What about those who are going to be struggling? What about those who are in difficulty? Are they going to benefit from his good goodwill? Are they going to benefit from his good fortune? This man has acquired his wealth, but in the process, other people are going to remain in their poverty as a result. And I think that's one of the things that Jesus has a problem with the expectation of some redistribution of wealth. Particularly because at that time in Judea, if you were wealthy, it meant that you were definitely a crook in one way, shape or form. It meant that you were a collaborator with the Romans, it meant that you were siphoning off money, and it meant that a whole load of other people were in destitution and despair whilst you were well to do. To be wealthy in Jesus' day meant that others had suffered. It meant that you were a collaborator with the Romans. The expectation of redistribution. How much of our own world today can we say that there are issues still of those who are rich having far too much money and those who are poor really struggling? The whole theory of trickle-down economics has constantly been proven not to work, and yet still that is the baseline model on which our governments operate in Western society. Apparently there's a vital need for tax breaks for the absolute richest of our country, whilst those who are in poverty in our nation are accessing food banks, something that never was ever there decades ago. So there is the important thing for us as Christians to think about our attitude to money and to think about our attitudes to justice when it comes to money. If you look at the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus actually doesn't really talk about sex very much. But he does talk about money a heck of a lot and he does talk about justice a heck of a lot. But if we look at the church today, all we ever seem to talk about is sex, and we never talk about the money and the justice side because that's a bit uncomfortable for us to actually do so. We in this church, we have made a statement that we are a fair trade church, and that is something that we should be proud of. How much more can we actually extend that going forward? 
so that we're not just a fair trade church in terms of the fact that our goods that we use in our, in our coffee shop, for example, are fair trade, but how much can we then say that us going out into the world, that we are fair trade Christians on a day-to-day basis as a result of that? How much is it that we can say we are people of economic justice in the way that we pursue everything? This rich fool, he's a fool because of the fact that he has such a profound indifference to the plight of others. That is his problem. And how many in our churches still think that actually to, be, to follow the prosperity gospel line, that somehow that is right, that to be rich means to be good, to be poor means to be bad in some way, shape or form, when actually Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is the absolute reverse of all of that. This rich man... By his indifference to others, he is guaranteeing for himself that even if he does live a long life, well, he's lost all of his friends in the process. He's going to be entirely on his own. He has been unable to support and nurture and develop community. When I asked you that question about how would you use a sudden amount of wealth that you found, you know, restoring a local resource centre, giving to charity, supporting your family, making sure that there is some kind of justice going forward, that that wealth that you found can help to reshape the world around. This rich man, because of his indifference, because of his lack of compassion, he is poor in the areas where it counts. His credit with his fellow humans is low and his credit with God is even lower. As a result, because of his indifference, God is displeased with him. But also because of his lack of clear planning, because of the fact that he's forgotten that, yes, you might have a five-year plan or a ten-year plan. You might, you might approach everything in a Stalinist kind of concept of, I know full well what's going to happen year on year on year. But the trouble is that actually we don't know what's around the corner. That life will throw its curveballs. Eight years ago, nobody had ever heard of the word Brexit, for example. Um, uh, back in uh, 1992, uh, I think it was, uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book called The End of History. As far as he was concerned, the communists had been defeated, that was it. There was going to be nothing interesting that was going to happen in world history beyond 1992 an interesting concept, but of course things like 9-11 then suddenly burst that theory wide open. We don't know what's going to happen. We can't foresee what's going to happen a few years down the line, and we certainly can't foresee what's going to happen for each of us a few years down the line, however many plans we make and how many hopes we might have that we know full well what's going to happen in the future. So part of what Jesus is saying, I think, is a little bit of carpe diem. It sees the day now. Use the things that you've got now for good to ensure that there is justice now. Not that the money you've saved now might be used somewhere down the line for some possible benefit, 
but what good can you do today? How can the resources you have be used for the advancement of kingdom of God today? So many people that I talk with as part of the privilege of my job that I have to have the difficult conversations with them about things like, well, have you actually sorted things like your funeral plans and all of that sort of thing out? And you'd be surprised how many people haven't actually made plans for, for those things that actually are important going forward. People just blithely keep carrying on rather than actually being clear about what on earth they're going to do. But Jesus, in this parable, alongside his challenge to greed, he challenges us about the fact that unfortunately we are mortal, that we're not going to live forever, and how, therefore, are we to respond to the fact that life really is short? Live today as if it might be your last. How can the things you have advance the kingdom today? And are the things you're longing for, are the things you're striving for, are they good and noble? Or are they actually just like this rich man, just for a quiet, easy, safe life? What are the longings and the priorities of your heart? What does it mean for you if you are to be rich with God rather than rich in terms of your wallet? And how prepared are you for the fact that actually you are mortal and that God will at one point be calling you to a higher purpose? How can you store up the treasures in heaven rather than just keep them here on earth? May God give us the wisdom we need to work out how to serve and advance his kingdom this day and forevermore. Amen.